Welcome back to our study on the book of Revelation. We're going to be tackling a couple of chapters today. Uh, I'm trying to squeeze a couple together here. Um, and my apologies, but my voice is is a little bit, uh, well, it leaves a little bit to be desired. As I've recovered from COVID in the last uh, few weeks, uh, the lingering effects have affected my voice and my vocal stamina. So now that may not be bad news to any of you who are watching this because uh, maybe I'll keep it a little more brief. But we, I do want to try and tackle 10 and 11 here uh, in this wonderful book uh, that we call Revelation. Um, when we tell stories, we tend to tell stories in a linear fashion, uh, beginning, middle, and end, sequentially. Uh, that's the typical way that we tell stories. That's not always been the case in human history, and certainly it wasn't the case in how stories were told uh, in the first century when when the book of Revelation was written, and really for many, many centuries after that. If you went to watch plays in the theater, all the way up to the time of Shakespeare, but really the melodramas of, of, of ancient Greece and anything in between, uh, there were often breaks. There were often times where we would pause the main story and maybe we focus on a side story. Or perhaps even um, they would break the what they call the fourth wall, where a character would pause, the, literally the action would pause, and this character will turn and address the audience directly. It's actually really pretty cool. Uh, and some of that those elements have, have made comebacks at times in our modern media and storytelling. But uh, in, in Revelation, if we're looking at it from the perspective of, of the audience that would have heard it originally, chapter 10 represents a little bit of a break. And really most of chapter 11 does too, because if you remember, we were opening these seals and we get to the seventh seal and these trumpets come out. And then we start, the, the trumpets start bringing forth um, these, these things that will occur, or these things that will happen. God is moving. Those trumpets are announcing his action that he's taking against the world and against those who persecute Christians. Uh, and we're, we're, we're all the way up to this uh, sixth trumpet and then we have these three woes that uh, come upon them, announced by the eagle that was flying in the sky. And it's going to be a little while. We're going to get to the end of chapter 11 before we get to that next, next trumpet. So this is a little bit of a break. And we're going to see a few things. So let's just dig in here, shall we? In chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When, they, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Um, now this is interesting. We see this elsewhere in scripture. This happens to Daniel uh, and some of his visions are apocalyptic uh, in their uh, in their tone and in their descriptions. We see this with Paul. Uh, we see the spirit moving to keep some things concealed because there's some things we're not ready to know yet. That's kind of hard for us to accept, but I think that's what we're dealing with here. There's some things that John doesn't need to reveal yet and the power of God uh, is letting him know that. So we don't know what the thunder is or what it's saying because John didn't write it. Probably because we don't need to know it yet. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, that idea of what we need to know. 
Okay, so uh, here's the thunders. He's told uh, not to write about it. Verse 5, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Uh, this angel, this mighty angel that is standing, there has been debate for centuries of who this angel is. Uh, and um, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, and if you decide to take a stand on who this angel is, uh, be prepared for the debate that's coming because there is absolutely no consensus in theological scholarship as to who this would be. Uh, some would say God or Jesus. Um, they're not described as angels in this way at any point in Scripture, with the exception that, uh, and I think there's very strong evidence for this, um, I used to not. I used to actually not agree with this, but the more I've studied it, I have to say I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the angel of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament, specifically referred to as the angel of the Lord, is probably Jesus. Uh, outside of that, we don't see God or Christ being described in the form of an angel, and I don't think they would be described that way here. And also, this angel is crying out to the heavens to who? To, uh, to him, swearing by him who lives forever and ever, and then goes on to describe the dominion over this world. That's God or Jesus. I, don't, I think those can be used interchangeably in some, in some ways. So they're swearing by God. The, the angel's swearing by God. Uh, here's the thing. When God wants us to know something, he's very good at telling us. So I don't believe that God writes riddles and mysteries um, and causes us to go on great searches for, for truth and for uh, information. When he wants us to know something, he tells us. Sometimes he tells us in ways that we can understand, maybe not uh, in ways we would like, but, um, but he tells us. So if he doesn't tell us, we probably don't need to know it. So let's not worry about it. But we do see the angel swearing by God. Now, it's interesting because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells people, don't do that. You shouldn't swear by God or swear by anything. And yet, you're, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, and, but, but this angel does swear by God. Why? Because he's qualified to. Uh, he, he has the ability to because he has, he has all of the accoutrement of, of God and the godliness. He's in the presence of the Almighty he may call on his name in this instance. <clears throat> and what does he say at the end of verse 6? There will be no a delay no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Okay. So what have we seen in these last few chapters in Revelation? We have seen God saying, I am going to bring punishment and judgment and vengeance on those who have harmed my people. And it's escalated incrementally from bringing on them some discomfort and some disruption to bringing on them now utter uh, illness to the point of death. And now death is coming. And he's saying, okay, here it comes. No more delay. What's going to happen is going to happen. By the way, this angel standing... Um, on the land and the sea, that would signify that this is a global message. This is a message to be, to be out into the world. This is a message of what is and what is to be. 
that posture indicates that. Um, so he says, the time is now. No more waiting. It's coming. Now, you might get excited about that and say, ha ha, yes, God's coming to uh, eradicate and, and deal with those who have done such harm to Christians. Now, I also want to caution you here, as I always do, let's look at it. It's about them. It's not about us, okay? Um, if we were to suddenly discover that there was something, uh, Biden, Trump, COVID, whatever, that <clears throat> in 2021 is what Revelation was talking about, um, and, and we finally figured it out, mystery revealed, it was talking about 2021, December of 2021 when I'm recording this, and this situation that, that's gone on. If that's what they're talking about in the first, that would, that would have nothing to do with the people in the first century. And if that's what they're talking about, that's what, what's being prophesied here, what does that say about God, quite frankly? Um, this is a message for them. It is a message for their context and their life and their time. And if you look at what the story God's telling through these revelations, incrementally he is going to defend his people and punish the wrongdoer, but that will come at a cost. And now, no more delay. It's, it's time for, for God to bring about this mighty change. And then look what happens here. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me and saying, Go and take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Okay, what is this about eating the book? It's rather strange, isn't it? Well, if you look back to Ezekiel, and I would urge you, if you're going to read Revelation, Ezekiel's a great companion because so many of the visions Ezekiel has we see here in Revelation. And it clues us into the idea that the audience hearing Revelation being spoken, which is how most of them heard it, they would have understood based on the literary uh, understanding of Ezekiel. Okay, God speaking in signs and symbols. God is um, speaking in language that we understand. And in Ezekiel, he receives a document which he eats and which becomes bitter in his stomach. And so they understood this literary device, this literary concept, to mean that a message is being given to someone that is a wonderfully beautiful, sweet message. But if you live with it long enough, it can become bitter, and it can hurt, and it can become uncomfortable. Here is, and, and he's told there at the end of the chapter, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Um, we often heard that John died on Patmos, and he was there receiving this revelation. He was there in exile. Uh, historically, probably not uh, totally true. Uh, might have been there for a while. We don't really have any evidence of any of it, but um, traditionally that's the view. Uh, it seems to me that this message was given to John, and he was told to take it. He sent on a mission to share this. So I'm not sure that he that his life ended there on Patmos, but, but nonetheless... He was given this message. He was given this prophecy. He was given the gospel, quite frankly. Uh, and what's oh, sweet message? It's sweet, but over time, the burden and the consequence 
of that message can weigh on us. And it can hurt. I mean, there are some things about sharing the gospel, accepting the gospel. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's, it, it, it's, it's the victory of humanity uh, by the grace of God. And yet the burden we bear in accepting it can sometimes be great. The consequence of these words can sometimes produce some harsh results for us. And so John, or the revelator, is how we'll refer to him, uh, is given this message. And much like Ezekiel, he consumes it. And while it tastes sweet, the consequence of it and living with it for a while is bitterness and, and hurt and, and burden. Okay, so we're moving on to chapter 11 now. So, so we had that little break, and we're having a little more break here. But we, we've got this message being delivered, right? This message about no more delay. The time has come. God's going to move, and he's going to move in a swift, decisive, destructive way over those who are persecuting Christians, over his people. Um, so you might run around celebrating, yay, yay God, uh, for what he's about to do. But, again, the consequence of it is going to come to bear to everyone, and, and that's important. So chapter 11. And, and by the way, what we're about to read here in chapter 11 might be some of the most difficult stuff in the book. We absolutely have no agreement as to what it means uh, in scholarly circles. Um, I say we like I'm part of the scholarly circles. I'm not. Um, but we, the royal we, uh, cannot find uh, consensus among the scholars. How's that? <clears throat> then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth, uh, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed this way. All right. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Let's move on. No. Um, again, how do you approach this? Do you take it all very literally uh, with the 42 and the 1260 and the lampstands and all that? Or do you take it all figuratively? Or do you do some mix of the two? And again... Take your stand where you will, but be prepared. There will be debate, okay? There's no agreement on this. It can be quite controversial, in fact, so we must be cautious here. Uh, we've got, he mentions here the two, um, uh, that he, um, excuse me, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, and standing before the Lord of the earth, and he's referring there uh, to his two witnesses, and we'll get to them in a minute. This idea of measuring, what, what are we doing there? Well, again, you go back to Ezekiel, I think, chapter 42, uh, and he, there's measuring involved there. Um, this is taking the measure of something. Measure the temple. Measure the people in it. Um, it it's a taking account of who you can count on. It's does someone measure up is the question we're asking. So when we take a measurement of someone, we're taking an assessment. We think about this in our churches all the time. We measure people. Um, who is here when we get together at our meeting times regularly? And does that person, you know, versus who is not? And then does that person who's there all the time reflect the values in their life of Christ? Or are they just a show up and go through the motions kind of person? 
Um, you know, these are all the, the things that we have to think about and all the things that we, uh, we look at when it comes to this idea of measuring. Uh, this is what we're talking about. It's just taking an assessment. Who can you count on? Who can you trust? Who can you know is going to be there for you because things are going to get hard? Now, we need to deal with these two witnesses. Um, they're going to prophesy and all this, right? And they, ha and they have this uh, power to, to defend themselves. Verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which uh, mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. Um, mystically, in some translations, we'll say figuratively or spiritually, um, called Sodom and Egypt. So again, we've got some symbolism here. So we've got these two uh, witnesses, and they're prophesying. And then they're killed. And they lay in the street of a great city, Sodom and Egypt. Um, and an aside to that, at the end of that verse, called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So right away we know we're talking about Jerusalem, um, but we're also talking about the sins of Sodom and Egypt. What's the sin of Sodom? Well, people will point right to the, the uh, you know, sexual impurity and, and sin and that kind of thing. But if you read the text, Sodom wasn't destroyed for their perversion in sexual behavior or any other thing like that. Egypt uh, did not sin um, uh, in the way that we think. There's similarities between the two because they were unjust and uh, destructive to the traveler and to the poor. If you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of Sodom was their lack of hospitality and kindness. They, they took advantage of poor people and travelers and did them harm. They did not show kindness and love to their fellow man. Same with Egypt. The, the Israelites come you know, to Egypt to, have the, to meet their needs uh, in a famine, and they're taken captive and they become slaves. So um, th this is speaking about the, the actions and the attitude of people. Uh, not so much just what they think, but what their actions and attitude reflect. And that's, that's the Sodom and Egypt we're dealing with here, um, where also the Lord was crucified. So we know Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies. These are the two witnesses of God. Will look at their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on earth. They were preaching the truth. They were speaking truth, and the world hated them for it. And when they were finally killed, put to death, silenced, the world rejoiced. Ah, but the story's not over. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is quickly coming. All right, we're going to get to the last few verses here in a moment. Well, who are these two witnesses? What are we talking about? Two, two witnesses for God. They go out uh, 
speaking and teaching and speaking on behalf of God and teaching the truth and 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 they're killed for it or, or their life ends and the world rejoices because they're gone. And then they come back to life and they go up to heaven and people are killed and people worship God. What? Again, a lot of controversy, a lot of debate, a lot of different opinions. I'll give you my opinion, um, but I'm pretty sure about this one. When we look through scripture, we see two very important components of God and his people and that relationship. It's reflected in the Old Testament. It's reflected in the New Testament. And if you remember the story of the transfiguration, then you will understand that two very important concepts, which are reflected in that story as well, are the law and the prophets. The law that was given through Moses and the prophets, who are most often represented by Elijah. I believe that these, these two witnesses they're referring to are Moses and Elijah, but more specifically, conceptually, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were put to death, but they were resurrected and embodied by Christ. He is the fulfillment of the message of the law and the prophets. He is the completion of the law and the prophets. And in our study on Hebrews, I greatly encourage you to read it because it talks, or watch it rather, because Hebrews talks a lot about that. All right, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. Now we're finally back to the trumpets. Okay. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the almighty who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign and the nations were enraged and your, and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. I want to point something out about something we said earlier about the, the thing that tastes sweet but, but is bitter. And about what happens when God, uh, the consequences of God moving on our behalf. He's going to bring about the end of the Roman Empire. God is. It falls. God is going to punish the wicked. God is going to hurt those who hurt his people. But it's going to have consequences too for the people. Um, because Rome falling had some serious consequences for people that lived under Rome. However, God is gracious, and he redeems that situation. Within a few centuries, Christianity becomes not only accepted and legal, but also the official religion of Rome. Uh, and there's discussion to be had about how beneficial that was to Christians and what kind of person Constantine was, but it's for another day. Um, there are consequences sometimes, but God is good. And God will redeem those situations. But this is why we leave vengeance in the hands of God. If whatever political party you are, for instance, whatever candidates you support, imagine for a minute that you could wipe out all of the political opponents of your position. Let's say for a minute that you could give absolute power to your particular ideology. And you might say, wonderful, great. Finally, we can fix some things that need fixing and get rid of some things that are bad. Um, 
that might seem great for a minute, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there have been many dictators and many evildoers throughout history who rose to power in populism and to great acclaim for what they were going to do for the people. But when they had the power, uh, as nature would have it, they turned it on those people and caused great harm to them. There's a reason why we don't take vengeance. There's a reason why we don't do the fighting. And we let God, because the consequences of what we do can sometimes be quite dire. And so let God move. Let God work. And look at what we see here toward the end of chapter 11. What does it come back to? The theme of revelation, in my mind. Worship. It's about worship. It's about orienting yourself, directing yourself, pointing yourself to God and saying, you're in charge and you've got this and I'm going to trust you. Whew, 10 and 11, heavy lifting, but we're going to move on to chapter 12 next time. Thanks so much for joining us. See you then.